Good morning, everybody. Praise God, huh? Great morning of worship. So glad to be with you guys. My name is Dan, if I don't know you, and, and uh, thankful that you're here and we're here together. If you have a Bible with you, please open up to John chapter 16. We'll be uh, starting at verse 16 today. Also want to remind you, if you're newer here, if you signed up for the uh, the membership information meeting, that'll be immediately after uh, this service over in the fellowship hall next door, and we'll have soup and salad or bread, whatever they feed us. And so um, we won't make that a long meeting, but we'll give you an opportunity to meet some of our leaders and ask questions, and, and uh, we just want to enjoy being together. So John 16, verse 16, uh, over the past few months we've been looking at this section of scripture where Jesus is eating with his disciples his last meal, and he's sharing with them what he wants them to know before he goes to the cross. And he's, he's told them some, some really wonderful things, and he's also told them some really difficult things. But he's promised them that whatever is to come for them, that he is going to be with them, and his Holy Spirit would fill them, and uh, he would be with them in great power and would give them grace to move forward. And in the passage we're going to look at today, Jesus is going to share some awesome news with the disciples, which is actually too awesome for them to fully understand at this point in time. So um, let's ask for God to help us. Lord, as we open your word, we just want to recognize you and continue to worship you and make you the focus of our thoughts and our adoration and worship today, God. And We ask for your help, Holy Spirit. Would you please illuminate this text for us. Would you please show us what's there and use that to change our hearts and our minds, God, to help us to turn from our sin and to turn to you in faith. Uh, Lord, please be with those next door and those who are serving this morning. Watch over them. Please protect us from the evil one now. Change us, Lord, into your image. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we'll start by looking at verses 16 to 18 in John 16. Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father... So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. So obviously the disciples are still confused by Jesus' words. They're confused about what Jesus is talking about and when these things are going to take place. And remember, get into their minds, these guys were Jewish. They'd been taught about the Savior that God would send to save the Jewish people. They called him the Messiah. And they were taught that the Messiah would be a conquering king who came in with guns blazing to overthrow the Roman Empire, to restore Israel to its rightful place of power, where their king would rule on earth. So it made no sense to the disciples how Jesus could be this Messiah if he's talking about being arrested and killed and then leave them and then he's going to return to heaven and he's not going to reign on earth. This doesn't make sense. And, and, you know, like we talked about last week, a lot of Jesus' words wouldn't make sense to the disciples until the other side of the cross and the other side of his resurrection. 
And in verse 16, Jesus says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. He's most likely talking about his crucifixion here. He's talking about his crucifixion, his death, his burial, which would all happen now in less than 24 hours from when he said this. And the disciples would be physically separated from Jesus. They literally wouldn't be able to see him. He would be buried in Middle Eastern burial garments, and he would be placed into a guarded tomb. But then in verse 16, Jesus says, and again, a little while, and you will see me. So the disciples don't understand what he's talking about, but he's telling them that not too long after he's hidden from them, he's going to reappear to them, and they're going to see him with their very own eyes. And then in verses 19 to 20, it says, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So because Jesus is God, he, he can literally read the minds of his disciples, right? He knows... Um, that they're still confused. And so in verse 20, he, tell, he says, I'm telling you the truth, you guys. You're going to weep. You're going to lament. And the world is going to rejoice. So Jesus is telling them that when he dies on the cross, a few things are going to happen. First, he says that they would weep and they would lament. So why would the disciples weep and lament in the days following Jesus' crucifixion and death? Well, the Bible gives us at least five reasons. First, the disciples would weep and lament because of the sheer cruelty of Jesus' physical suffering and death. Jesus would go from uh, having a peaceful dinner with his friends to praying with them in a garden to being betrayed with a kiss by Judas. He'd then be arrested by the authorities. He'd be punched in the face. He'd be spat on, ridiculed. He'd be flogged violently by Roman soldiers. He'd have a crown of thorns pressed into his skull. He'd be beaten on the head by a rod. He'd be uh, nailed to a cross through his hands and through his feet where he would continue to be mocked until he finally died of asphyxiation. And, you know, crucifixion was not a normal type of death for most people in the Roman Empire. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. This is uh, the kind of uh, criminals that we put into isolation in our prisons so that the other prisoners don't kill them. That's what was happening to Jesus. And the Romans crucified people in order to make a statement. Okay? They hung people up on poles in order to make a statement. They were telling the citizens, if you act like one of these people, or if you follow one of these people, this is what's going to happen to you. So the disciples wept and they lamented, first because of the sheer cruelty of Jesus' physical suffering and death. And second, the disciples wept and lamented because of the injustice of Jesus' arrest and trial and death. What did Jesus ever do? What did he do to demand to be 
the, to deserve to be executed? How in the world could this rally of people come together to demand that Jesus be crucified? They said they'd rather free one of the worst prisoners than to free Jesus. And this was the crowd that Jesus came to save. How could all these people betray Jesus? How could Judas betray Jesus with a kiss? These events surrounding his death were totally unfair. And they were reason for the disciples to weep and to lament. And third, the disciples would weep because of the guilt that they felt for abandoning Jesus. Remember, Jesus told them that when he, there, he was the shepherd and when he would be struck, that his followers would all scatter. The shepherd gets struck, the sheep scatter. And they would all abandon him. Some of the disciples would betray him. Some would pretend not to know him. Others would just flee to their homes and hide out in the closet <laughs> while Jesus was being tortured. Now we know that at least Peter and John came back before Jesus' crucifixion at one point in the trial. But the reality is that none of Jesus' friends were there to stand by him. None of them were there next to him to support him. And they wept because of the guilt they felt for abandoning their rabbi. Fourth, the disciples would weep and lament because of their deep disappointment that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. He didn't free the Jews like they'd hoped. He he wasn't what they hoped for. They believed that Jesus had been the Messiah, but now they were crushed because after everything they'd seen and experienced with him, after everything, all signs now pointed to Jesus not being who he said he was. And they were devastated. How could they have been so misguided? What about all the signs and wonders they had seen him do? He did things that nobody had done. And now he was gone. He wasn't their conquering king. And so they wept. They lamented. And fifth, the disciples wept and lamented because in this new chapter, they knew they were lost without Jesus. They had given up so much to follow him. And, and during Jesus' public ministry over the past three years, you know, they, hadn't, uh, they didn't always know where he was taking them. They didn't know... Uh, where they were going to stay the night or where they were going to find something to eat. But as long as Jesus was with them, everything turned out okay. So what were they going to do now? Jesus was the one with the game plan. Jesus was their leader. He was now gone. And they wept like abandoned, disoriented orphans. So obviously there were a lot of reasons for the disciples to weep and lament when Jesus died and and in verse 20, Jesus says that while the disciples would be weeping and lamenting, the world would be doing something else. The world would be rejoicing. See, so Jesus' followers would be weeping because of his death, but the world would be rejoicing because of his death. The leaders of the Jews, the Romans, the crowd that demanded uh, Jesus' crucifixion, they would all be celebrating that, you know what, we finally taught him a lesson. We got rid of him. You see how wicked this is? This is the same world, the moral order in rebellion against our maker. This is the same world we're part of. You see how wicked it is? It hasn't changed. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about Easter and specifically Good Friday, I, I normally think about Jesus being crucified on the cross. I think about the storm that swept in. I think about the earthquake that came and, and shook and broke rocks. And there were onlookers and soldiers that saw this. And when it happened, the very, some of the very people who crucified Jesus were like, oh my goodness, we just crucified the Son of God. He really was who he said he was. And then I always think of Friday afternoon as kind of a somber time, a quiet time when Jesus' body was wrapped in burial garments. It was, they were placed in a, a tomb. Uh, his body was placed in the tomb. And then, and then Saturday of Easter weekend is kind of this quiet day of sorrow and reflection as we wait to see Jesus again. And all of that is true because that's essentially how Scripture describes the events of Easter weekend. But until I studied the passage this week, I, I'd never really given much thought to the fact that Friday and Saturday weren't merely a sorrowful time for the followers of Jesus. Friday and Saturday were days of rejoicing for the world. Because the world hates the light. It wants to get rid of the light. It wants to stay in the darkness. This world that Jesus created with the Father and the Spirit, the, the world that Jesus came to rescue from condemnation, this is the same world we live in today, which is still actively rebelling against God, against His Word, and it is the world that rejoiced when they finally shut up Jesus and put Him in the ground. Now, according, you guys know, according to human wisdom and rationale and Empirical analysis, it is impossible for a person to come back from the dead. No person could raise himself or herself back from the dead. No man could be beaten and slaughtered by Roman soldiers and within three days be back up and going, fully healed, recovered, more glorious and more powerful than ever before. But Jesus wasn't a mere broken human like you and me. Jesus was 100% God, 100% human. Jesus uh, is, is, is God, and, and his wisdom and his rationale as God, his ways as God, are infinitely greater than our ways. They're infinitely greater than these man-made boxes that we intelligent humans think we can keep him in. And so Jesus tells us, uh, and his disciples in verse 20 to 22, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In verse 20, Jesus tells the disciples that they will be sorrowful. What they're feeling right now is going to continue and increase when he dies. But he also assures them that the sorrow or grief, in some of your translations, this is temporary okay, for them. And in fact, their sorrow he says, will turn into, it will change into joy. Now, how will that happen? How does this happen? What will turn their sorrow into joy? Seeing Jesus. 
Okay, that's what's going to do it. When Jesus appears to them again in his body of flesh and blood and they see him with their own eyes, then their hearts will rejoice. The, the joy that fills their hearts at that moment would change them forever. And Jesus promises them that uh, when the disciples see him again, their, their sorrow is going to turn into this joy and he likens it to this pregnant woman who's delivering a baby and she's sorrowful. Because of the terrible pain that she's in. But as soon as she delivers that baby, she forgets about the pain because her pain has been eclipsed by the greater joy of bringing a human into the world. And he tells the disciples that the grief and the sorrow that they'll experience in the coming days is soon going to be eclipsed by a greater joy. The joy of seeing Jesus risen from the dead. And as we're going to see in the coming chapters, that's exactly what happens to the disciples. And the same thing will happen for you and for me. If we trust in Jesus. Our sorrows will turn into joy when we see Jesus. Yes, by the, by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit in this life shows us our Savior Jesus as our glorious Lord, and the Spirit gives us faith to believe and to trust in the Lord. But can you imagine how much more joy we're going to have when we meet Jesus face to face someday? Think about that. And everybody on earth, regardless of race, regardless of religion, is going to meet Jesus face to face someday, either for judgment or blessing. And that's going to happen in one of two ways. Either our lives on earth are going to end and the Lord will call us to his presence or Jesus is going to come back first. And either way, Jesus, this is what he says, he assures you and me, I will see you again. Can you even imagine this? I mean, this is where we've got to let our minds run a little bit. And within the guardrails of Scripture. But can you imagine what it's going to be like to see Jesus? We know that right now, according to Scripture, Jesus is exalted. He is exalted in glory. He's in heaven. He's the right hand of God the Father. Scripture says this in several points. We know that the transfiguration which he experienced on earth was a foreshadowing of his glory to come. And so his face is shining like the sun. His clothes are as white as the light. He has thousands upon thousands of angels serving him and worshiping him right now as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so when we join in worship on Sunday mornings, we are simply joining the song that the angels have been singing for thousands of years. That's what we're joining them. And here's the description we have of when Jesus will return to the earth. According to Revelation 19, 11 to 16. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The same title that John's Gospel starts with. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a majestic image that says, Fear the Lord. He is the maker. And you guys, this is Jesus. This is the sight that you and I are going to see someday. This is a description of the one who loves you. This is the one who became your sin for you. This is the one who suffered God's wrath completely for you, who died for you. This is the one who is interceding for you right now. This is the one who's on your team if you're in Christ. He's the judge of the world. He says that all judgment has been handed to him. And so if he is your Lord, he is also your justifier. He is the one who has already declared you not guilty in God's sight of your sin because he made you into the righteousness of God. And by God's grace, many of us in here have trusted in Jesus and seen him by faith. But man, on that future day, when we see Jesus in the flesh, he is going to blow us away. Okay? He's going to rock this world. And on that day, your sorrows, your grief, will completely turn into joy. And we praise God for the hope and the peace that he gives us right now amidst our trials on earth, for the joy that we have in Christ. But there is a perfect joy coming that will totally satisfy you when you see Jesus. The, the nagging guilt that you feel over those past sins that you've committed, they're going to dissipate when you enter the presence of Jesus. Because what you're going to see is Jesus. You're going to see what perfect righteousness looks like. You're finally going to understand what Jesus has done for you to make you this perfect in the sight of God. Those past sins, those, it just goes away. When, we're, when we see Jesus, we're not going to want our sin anymore. Okay? Your appetite for sin, it vanishes in his presence because your soul is perfect. It's, it's perfectly satisfied by Jesus. I don't want that stuff. That's what I want there. I want him on my team. I want to be under his shelter. You're finally going to understand what it means that your whole life long, Satan has been urging you to eat mud pies that you think look really good while Jesus has been offering you a never-ending vacation by the ocean. Satan and sin can't come close to what Jesus offers. When you see Jesus someday, your anxiety, your depression, your loneliness, it will leave you immediately because you're going to be with the Prince of Peace. You're going to be with the one who conquered every single cause for anxiety and depression and, and loneliness. If you even brought up an idea, well, what about this? No. 
It's not even there. Your faith is going to be made perfect. You're going to be totally satisfied in Jesus. Jesus, your, your, your physical, your, your sickness, your maladies, your diseases, they don't go with you with him. They don't go to heaven with you because those are not lasting realities for those who live in Jesus' presence. Revelation says that Jesus is going to wipe away your tears if you belong to him. He says that death will be no more for you. That suffering, you won't have that word in your vocabulary. There's going to be no more mourning. There's going to be no more crying. There's not going to be any more pain. All of those things will be in the past for those who belong to Jesus. And one of the amazing realities of the gospel of Jesus as we read the New Testament is that our temporary suffering that you and I and many of us, I'm sure, are going through today, our sufferings are not disconnected from the future glory that we're going to experience when we see Jesus. But in fact, the trials and the hardships that happen to us right now in this life, they're not pointless. They're not merely this cross that we have to bear for a little while and try to get through. The Bible says that our present sufferings, because of Jesus, Jesus has flipped them, that they are now working for the eternal good of those who belong to Jesus. Okay? So the sufferings that you were enduring in this life, whether that's at home, your health, school, your family, whatever it is, the sufferings you're enduring this, in this life are working for you to enhance your future experience of the grace of Jesus in heaven. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, for this light momentary affliction. Okay, those are the words he uses to describe hell on earth, okay? In, in comparison to the glory of God and what we're going to experience, he calls them, these are light momentary afflictions. They don't, most of the time they don't feel light and momentary, okay? For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You can't even compare it. If you try to think about what it would be, you can't. So when we see the resurrected Jesus, we're somehow going to see that our earthly trials, they weren't in vain. But they have served us to help us see Jesus and savor Jesus and the salvation that he gives us and the redemption that he's accomplished and the companionship that he gives us and the glory that he has more deeply than we could possibly imagine. All things are under his feet. We will someday see how all of our sufferings have served to give us a greater delight in the Lord who has eternally already conquered suffering for us. Wow. Now to put into perspective how incredible it's going to be to encounter Jesus in his heavenly glory. Let's just consider how much the disciples were impacted when they saw Jesus resurrected in glory on earth, okay, before he even ascended. One of the disciples, Thomas, you know, was, was plagued by doubt, right? doubting Thomas. He had lived with Jesus, he'd walked with Jesus, he talked with Jesus for three years. 
But he refused to believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, even when the other disciples said that we saw him. Thomas said, I won't believe it until I see it and feel it. Well, eight days later, Jesus appeared to Thomas and his disciples inside a room that was locked. He shows up. How, what about the deadbolt? They can't figure it out. And he told Thomas to feel for himself the scars in his hands and the wound in his side where he was stabbed by the spear. And finally, this hard-hearted Thomas, he declared faith in Jesus when he said, my Lord and my God. That's all he said. My Lord, my God. Are you like Thomas today? Are you constantly doubting that Jesus is God? Are you constantly doubting that his word is true? Are you, do you know someone like that? Well, I pray that God would give you saving faith if you're not saved. And if you are saved, I pray that you would trust Jesus because his ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. If, you, if, you're, if you're waiting to submit to Jesus until you got them all figured out, you're not going to submit to him. Okay? Because you're never going to... Think about what you're saying. I got to wait until I figure God out. You're never going to understand all the ways of the Lord. That's what makes him God and you, you. And that's how it's going to be in eternity. You're not going to all of a sudden be an infinite being in eternity. You're going to be you. You're going to be a glorified you, but Jesus is going to make you perfect. But you're still going to be finite. And the Lord is still going to be infinite. And that's why we're going to be infinitely worshiping him and seeing more of his grace and experiencing more of his wonders in eternity. And it's not going to end. It just keeps going and going and going. But you got to know this. You're not going to be given the same opportunity that Thomas had. You will not be able to feel and touch Jesus before you decide if he's really God. Learn from Thomas. See how his mindset about God was radically changed after Jesus' resurrection and believe that Jesus is God. He's back from the dead. Or think about Peter. He was one of the 12 who was totally transformed when he encountered his resurrected Lord on earth. Peter, you know, during his life said, Lord, I never leave you. I got your back. He didn't have his back. As soon as those soldiers showed up and arrested in the garden, Peter does one of these things. <laughs> okay? Then he drives, grabs for the sword and he cuts off a guy's ear accidentally. And then Jesus is like, don't do that. And he picks up the ear and puts it back on his head. Okay? But then Peter leaves Jesus' side and he watches him from a distance. And then he denied knowing Jesus three times. A little girl came up to him and said, aren't you one of the disciples? No, little girl. He's scared of a girl all of a sudden. He's a tough fisherman. I don't know what you're talking about. Can you imagine what Peter felt inside when he heard that rooster crow? Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. And then the rooster crows. I can't imagine the guilt and shame of, of rejecting the Lord, denying the Lord. But in a sense, I have before I was in Christ. 
And then a few days later, Jesus appeared to the disciples. He appeared to Peter. Jesus shows no ill will toward Peter. He doesn't, you know, kill him with a lightning bolt. And then a few days after that, Jesus, he has this conversation with Peter. They're having breakfast on the beach. And Jesus restores Peter. And he tells Peter, I'm going to use you to build my church. And think about this. Peter had been a coward. And he, but then all of a sudden, something so drastically changed this guy that he spent the rest of his life spreading the gospel with boldness. And it was because he had seen the resurrected Lord back from the dead. Okay. The disciples had been filled with sorrow when Jesus died, but when they saw Jesus back from the dead in glory, their sorrow was eclipsed by this greater joy, and nothing could take that joy away from them. These disciples were changed men. Their lives were no char longer characterized by cowardice and doubt and self-pity. The joy of Jesus transformed them into these brave men all of a sudden, faithful men who gladly gave everything in order to tell the world, the good news about Jesus. And according to her historical tradition outside of the Bible, most of the disciples died for their faith in Jesus. None of them recanted. None of them said, okay, you're right, we made it all up. Please don't do that to me, okay? Never happened. And they weren't sorrowful about dying for Jesus. They were joyful about it because they knew firsthand, we've seen with our own eyes, this isn't the end. They knew that Jesus had defeated death and that their souls were in his hands. And so the disciples died in different ways as they went to spread the gospel to obey Jesus because that's what he told them to do. And Some were beheaded and some were hung upside down on crosses and others were beaten to death. Andrew is said to have been tied on a cross where he hung for several days and as he hung there, he allegedly preached with joy to his tormentors the gospel. No human reason ex can explain that. No human reason can explain away this immediate drastic transformation of the disciples. The fact is, they truly encountered the resurrected Jesus, and that encounter filled them with an internal joy that considered everything lost, even life itself, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing and seeing Jesus Christ. Now, for you and me, it's important for us to note that even though we're not going to reach the apex of our joy in Christ till we see him, Jesus still graciously gives us his joy during this life on earth. The Holy Spirit makes us into new creations as we turn from sin and turn to Jesus in faith. First, uh, and Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 1, 8 to 9. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the joy-filled promises of the Old Testament. Psalm 30, 11 to 12 says, you turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and you clothed me with joy so that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. 
The resurrected Jesus turns our wailing into dancing. He turns our sorrow into a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And in John 16, 22 here, Jesus says that nobody will take this joy from us. How does he know that? How does he know nobody's going to take this joy from us? What about when a loved one dies? Isn't that going to take away my joy in Christ? What about when I get cancer? Won't that take away my joy? What about when I'm persecuted at school or at my job or in my country for following Jesus? Isn't that going to take away my joy? What about when people slander me? do injustice to me. Won't, won't that take away my joy? What about the suffering in the world? We see horrendous things. Won't that take away our joy in Christ? What about when I die? Won't that take away my joy in Christ? No! Okay? For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? Romans 8, 38 to 39. Now that is the truth, okay? That nothing can separate us from Christ. Nobody, no thing can take away the joy of Christ from those who truly belong to him. Yes, you might very likely in this life be sad, depressed, Lonely, doubtful, mournful, and anxious at times. But the joy of Jesus is deeper than that. Okay? And that's because our joy in Jesus flows from a finished event in history when Jesus, the God-man, finished the work of atonement for our sins, for the sins of his church on the cross. He says, it is finished. Okay? And his resurrection is a historical reality with present implications. Jesus rose from the dead and he's still alive. Okay? By rising from the dead, Jesus has shown us his true identity. He is the Messiah that they didn't think he was. He is the Son of God. He's displayed his power over death. Nobody does that. Nobody has that power except God. He's conquered sin He's purchased his church with his blood. And he's declared us. He made a declaration. You're declared not guilty in God's sight. You have the righteousness of Christ. And think about this. In heaven, it says that Jesus still has the scars in his hands and in his side. These are going to forever testify to us that the work is finished. And that God loves us. And that nothing's going to take our joy from us. And he's going to make sure of it. And he has the scars to prove it. And just as our present sufferings serve to enhance our future glory, so also Jesus' sufferings during his life serve to enhance our eternal joy and also the glory of his name. Nobody will take away our joy in Jesus because this is why. Nobody can. Okay? Our joy in Jesus isn't rooted in circumstances or in feelings. Our joy is rooted in the finished work of Jesus on the cross who's risen from the dead. Do you have that joy today? 
pray for God. God, give me joy. Do you have faith that this is all true? For you, personally, not for your neighbor, not for your kids, not for your parents, are you trusting in Jesus today? Saying, I believe this. I believe this is true. I believe Jesus is God. That's the way to have life with God, is to believe him, to trust in him. Jesus is the only one who suffered and died for your sins so that you can have life with him now and forever. And if you believe in Jesus, read John 15 again. He tells you, I want you to abide in me. I want me to be home base for you. I want you to live in me every day. I want you to live in my love every day. I want you to remember how much I love you and what I've done to show you that. I want you to live in my word I want my words to live in you because you need my word. That's what Jesus says. Man, it's such good news that God is the one who accomplishes our salvation and God is the one who secures it. He's the one who preserves our salvation. He's the one who seals us by the Holy Spirit. Does it make you happy to have joy in Jesus? (laughs) Does it make you thankful Are you thankful that your joy, it won't be taken from you if you're worried about it. Jesus says, it's not going to be taken from you because his hand is more powerful than yours and nobody takes his kids away from him. Nobody takes his sheep from Jesus. And he says, nobody takes the father's sheep from his hand. Man, if that makes you thankful, then we got to follow the lead of the disciples. What did they do when they were transformed? What did they do with their radically changed lives they risked much for jesus risk much i don't know what that looks like for you are you taking risks for the glory of god give much for jesus not to be seen not to be worshiped just give because god has given you everything and you're his ambassador here and love much for jesus even when it hurts. Give much, risk much, love much. This Thanksgiving week, we have a lot to give thanks to God for, no matter what our present circumstances are. And he deserves our thanks. Make time to actually discipline yourself this week to thank him. I don't know what that looks like for you, writing it down in a journal, sitting down with your family, just saying, you guys, listen to some things where we're thankful for. Going around your Thanksgiving table and say, what are you guys thankful for? What can we thank the Lord for? Man, thank him. Abide in him. Abide in his word. Abide in his love. And overflow with his love so much that you serve others this week the way that he has served you. And rejoice because you and I are going to see Jesus again. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you. For all of this great news, God, that is too much for us to fathom, it really is. You say it's beyond comprehension. But wow, it's fun to imagine. It's fun to use our brains to to go to those limits as far as we can within the bounds of Scripture and say, this is what Jesus promises, and this is what's coming, and this life isn't the end of the story, and this suffering This doctor's appointment, this surgery, this ridicule that I'm taking isn't the end. This is temporary. 
It is going to be perfect when I meet Jesus. So Jesus, right now, I know that's coming. Please use us to let it be on earth as it is in heaven. To be reconciled with one another. To be thankful. To trust you. To worship you. To adore you. To make our entire lives about you. And it seems like a big... It seems complicated at times because you're so big. You're so awesome. You're so holy. But thank you, God, for coming down to our level and making yourself a person so that you can say, you know what? Just talk to me. You tell us to draw near to you, and you will draw near to us. And so I pray for us in this room, God, that we would do that, that we would confess sin if we need to do that, that we would trust in you this week, Jesus, if we never trusted in you, that we would be baptized as a reflection of what you've done for us, that we would celebrate with one another. Oh, Lord, we need your help and grace. Please let this message not just flow out of our minds and hearts as we walk out today. Let this permeate our hearts and souls this week and just give you glory that you deserve and trust in you and have joy in you right now that we're gonna see you again. We love you and pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.